Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. We're going to be covering both chapters 5 and 6 this morning. Last week we talked about Israel's crossing of the Jordan River and how the main point of that miracle was the comparison between Moses' crossing of the Red Sea and Joshua's crossing of the Jordan. The point was to demonstrate miraculously to Israel that God was leading Joshua, just as God had led Moses. Another reason God demonstrated his power in stopping up the Jordan River was to teach Israel to fear God. So we talked at length last week about what it means to fear God. This morning we come to the very famous children's story of how the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. But when you dig into it, the story turns out to be R-rated for violence and adult contact. Let's start by reading chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts melted in fear. and They no longer had courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israel at Gebeth Haaraloth. Let's pray. Lord, this is a very troubling passage this morning to many people, even to many of your people. Help us to see it from your perspective. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So after setting up the pile of stones in Gilgal as a memorial to the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, as we saw last week, one of the first things Joshua does at God's command is to require the Israelite army to become circumcised. Now, I'm sure Joshua's, some of Joshua's men must have thought, what on earth is Joshua thinking? The Canaanites could attack and wipe out our entire army while we're incapacitated. This has to be one of the worst military strategies in history. Well, if that's what Joshua's men were thinking, they would be right. Joshua Jericho could have attacked, and they may have wiped out the entire Israelite army. So why didn't Jericho, why didn't Jericho attack? Well, first, they apparently didn't have any spies among the Israelites and didn't know how vulnerable they were. And second, verse 1 says, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. But why did the Israelite army need to be circumcised in the first place? Verses 4 to 8 give the explanation. Now this is why he did so. All of those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness, on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. But why not? Why had they not obeyed God's command to circumcise their sons as a sign of the covenant? And why do it now? Why wait until they're in enemy territory only miles from Jericho leaving the entire Israelite army vulnerable to being wiped out. 
The answer is that we don't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us. But I think I have a couple of pretty good guesses. First, I think God was testing Israel. Would they trust God, even if that meant being vulnerable to potential destruction by the Canaanites? Or would they rebel against Joshua, just as their forefathers had rebelled against Moses? Unlike their fathers, Joshua's men trusted the Lord. A second reason for requiring circumcision may have been that Israel was about to take the land that God had covenanted to give to Abraham's descendants. But the sign of the covenant was circumcision. How could the Israelites rightfully take possession of the land promised by covenant if they were not God's covenant people as demonstrated by circumcision? So the men obeyed God and got circumcised. Then in verse 10, On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated Passover. So Israel has en entered enemy territory, territory and is about to attack the first city they come to, Jericho. But now they stop to celebrate the Feast of Passover, which, by the way, is a week-long celebration. The longer they sit there in enemy territories, the more likely it could be that enemies had time to gather against them. Even so, they postponed their attack to spend time celebrating Passover. I think this is another case in which the people demonstrated their faith in God and in Joshua's leadership, even when it didn't seem to make sense. I guess the question for us is, will we obey God even when it doesn't seem to make sense? Like, for example, when Peter says we must obey God rather than man. I mean, sometimes that could result in fines or jail. Then in verses 11 and 12, the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. God had miraculously provided for Israel for 40 years in the desert, but he had promised that he would one day bring Israel into a land flowing with milk and honey, a metaphor for a land of plenty. They were now in that land of plenty and no longer needed God's miraculous provision. Next comes a very strange story about Joshua meeting a man with a sword who just seems to appear out of nowhere. Verses 13 to 15 say, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is a really puzzling passage. Who is this commander of the army of the Lord? 
Is he an angel like Gabriel or Michael? And if so, what is the point of this little story? And why was the ground holy? As far as we know, there was nothing holy about Gilgal. I think the main reason these questions come up is because the chapter division makes it look like what follows in chapter 6 is a separate story. So watch what happens when I read chapter 5, verse 15. So look at 5, verse 15. And I'll read chapter 5, verse 15, and chapter 6, verse 2 together. So I'm going to leave out chapter 1 for now, I mean verse 1 for now. And I'll start in 5.15, and then I'll jump to chapter 6, verse 2. The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and fighting men. If you assume that verse 1 is like a parenthetical statement, all of a sudden it becomes clear that the commander of the army of the Lord is the Lord, Yahweh himself. God is appearing to Joshua, just as God had appeared to Moses at the burning bush. In fact, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, God said to Moses, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Which is exactly what the Lord says to Joshua. The place was not holy ground because Gilgal was anything special. It was holy ground because God, the commander of his army, was there in person. And I think Joshua recognized this because in chapter 5, verse 14, it says Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence, which can also be translated as worship. Theologians call appearances like this a theophany, a physical appearance of God. It happens several times in the Old Testament, like, for example, when God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18. Anyway, God then tells Joshua how to take the city. Since the parenthetical statement in verse 1 said that the city was securely barred, I suspect Joshua was all ears and wanted to know the military strategy for how they were going to conquer a walled city so securely barred. So in chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, God says, March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry the trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army or the army will go straight up, everyone straight in. I don't know about Joshua, but I think I would have thought, wait a minute, you, you want me to do what? Just mark around, march around the city waiting for the walls to collapse? What kind of military strategy is that? That didn't make any sense. But Joshua believed God. So in verses 6 to 14, Joshua gave the instructions to the army. The whole procession was to be led by an armed guard, followed by seven priests who were to blow their grand horn trumpets. Next would be priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. 
and the ark would be followed by an armed rear guard. And all of that would be followed by the army of Israel. They were to march around the entire city of Jericho one time each day for six days. Then, in verses 15 to 17, on the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies that we sent. So on the seventh day, they did as Joshua commanded and began to march around the city seven times. But before they did, Joshua gave a very ominous warning in verse 18. He said, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. When verse 18 says they were to keep away from the devoted things, it means they were not to take anything in Jericho for themselves. There was to be no looting. And the reason, in verse 18, was that so you, not, so you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. In other words, if you take stuff in Jericho for your own possessions, you will bring about your own destruction. And not only that, but if you take stuff in Jericho for your own possessions, in verse 18, also says you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction. How much clearer could Joshua be? You take stuff in Jericho and keep it for yourself, and you will be destroyed, and you will bring destruction on Israel. As we will see next week, that is exactly what Achan and his family did. Achan took stuff from Jericho and hid it in his own tent, apparently with his family's collusion. And the result was that Israel was soundly defeated in the next battle, and Achan was executed along with his family, exactly as Joshua had warned. So in verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. Now, many scholars look for a natural explanation to everything, so they suggest that there was an earthquake that caused the wall to collapse. That's possible. God can certainly use natural events for his purposes. But if this was an earthquake, then the miracle is that the earthquake happened immediately after the Israelites began shouting. But God doesn't need natural events for miracles. Sometimes miracles have no natural explanation. Verse 21 says, They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Only Rahab and her family were saved as promised. In verse 24, the city was then burned, and silver, gold, bronze, and iron were brought into the treasury of the Lord's house at God's command. Now, the elephant in the room has to do with the phrase in verse 21 that they destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, 
men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. It's interesting to me that for the most part, very few people seemed to have much problem with this story until very recently. In fact, it's been a very popular children's story. But the story is very controversial today. God has even been accused of being a moral monster for destroying women and children and animals. Some scholars, mostly liberal and progressives, argue that God didn't order any of this violence and that these stories are just culturally conditioned human stories that were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. The problem is that the idea of God's wrath is not just found in one or two verses here or there. The wrath of God is a significant doctrine that's found throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If we can throw out such a major biblical doctrine like the wrath of God simply because it doesn't fit modern sensibilities, we might just as well throw out the whole Bible, which is pretty much what, much what many have done. So what do we do with this? Well, my answer is not going to satisfy everyone. People who start with a human-centered theology will not be satisfied with any justification for God's wrath. And that's a big part of the problem. Our culture has shifted from a God-centered worldview to a human-centered, sin-justifying worldview. If you have a human-centered, sin-justifying theology, then anything God does that we don't like is going to be offensive to us. A second problem is that many people think stories of God's judgment, like the ones in Joshua, contradict the doctrine of God, the love of God. I think their problem is that they're cherry-picking God's word to support their human-centered theology of love. As I've argued before, we are not free just to rip the idea of God's love out of its broader context and make it mean whatever we want it to mean, as if the God, love of God means that he would never send a worldwide flood or or destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, or Canaanites, or send anyone to hell. The Bible itself defines God's love. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Likewise, Romans 5.8, Paul says, God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is expressed not in his tolerance for sin, but in the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and submitted himself to torture on a Roman cross to save us from the consequences of our own sin and rebellion. As the hymn says, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The God of the Bible is the creator of heaven and earth, and like it or not, everything belongs to him including everything that breathes. He can reclaim that life anytime he chooses. The Bible portrays God as being remarkably long-suffering or patient, but his patience can run out. In the case of Canaan, God had demonstrated an amazing amount of patience toward Canaanites. Way back in Abraham's time, in Genesis 15, God told Abraham that the Amorite or Canaanite sins had not yet reached its full measure. Now, I listed some of the horrendous Canaanite sins and perversions last week, so I won't repeat them today. But suffice it to say that when an entire society is exposed to and victimized for generations by such atrocities and perversions from childhood, there is little, or if any, hope for that society. 
So after 400 years, God's patience ran out and judgment fell at the hands of Joshua. And as the book of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall at the hands of the living God. But many Christians believe that violence is just unworthy of God. For example, there's a theologian from Yale University named Miroslav Volf who believed this. Volf eventually changed his mind. This is what he says. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia, a region from which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. That's the end of the quote. And bingo, I think Wolf gets it exactly right. So are there any practical lessons we can learn from this passage? Well, certainly, but first I want to point out again that this command to destroy Jericho was given only to Joshua and his army, and no one else in all of history. This story has no application and is no excuse for tyrants to conquer other peoples. The second is a question. Why does the book of Joshua give so much prominence to the story of Rahab and Jericho? Archaeologists have shown that Jericho was just a small, insignificant town among the many towns of Canaan. More importantly, almost the entire conquest of Canaan is covered in just two chapters, chapters 10 and 11. And by contrast, the book of Joshua spends three chapters on just Rahab and Jericho alone, chapters 2, 5, and 6. You see, the story has more to do with Rahab than Jericho. Just before Jericho is conquered, Joshua reminds the army in chapter 6, verse 17, that they are to protect Rahab and their family. Then in verses 22 to 25, after the destruction of Jericho, in the conclusion to the whole story, Joshua tells the two spies to go in and protect Rahab and her family. Many scholars believe this story of Rahab is given such prominence in the book of Joshua because the writer is hinting that if others in Canaan had followed the example of Rahab and her family's faith in God, they might also have been saved from destruction. As the book of Joshua unfolds, however, we find that they instead chose to take up arms and fight against Israel and fight against God. Chapter, finally, third in chapter 3, verse 5 to 15, in chapter 5, verse 13, Joshua asks the commander of the Lord's armies, which I argued was the Lord himself, are you for us or our enemies? 
In verse 14, the Lord answered, neither. Really? The Lord wasn't on Joshua's side? No. It was not a matter of whose side the Lord was on. It was a matter of whose side Joshua or the Canaanites were on. The same principle applies today. Just as one example in the political arena. As Christians, our ultimate allegiance should never be to a political party or even to our own country. We should judge all our relationships based on our ultimate allegiance to God. The question is never, is God on our side? The question should always be, are we on God's side? Let's pray. Lord, give us the kind of faith that Joshua had to trust you even when it didn't seem to make sense. And give us the wisdom and courage to be on your side, regardless of what our country or culture may tell us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.